The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Emlin Robot Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Dude, uh, Seattle, how was it? Seattle was fantastic. It was fantastic. Um, awesome. You know, r- rainy, cold, uh, but fantastic. Yeah, I, I've I've been in touch with someone there quite a bit lately, and I, I keep hearing about these lovely days, and then I find out it's 48, and I'm like, what, what, come again? You know, in a lot of ways, that's kind of my jam. I kind of like it. Uh, <laughs> right, brisk right. Like that, we have established. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'd definitely rather it was 48 than 78, probably. And I know I'm uh, weird that way, and we don't have to talk you, about yeah. it. <laughs> we don't have to talk about it. Um, that's fine. I heard, that's fine. I heard you got yourself a new mountain bike. I did. I did. Um, after, I mean, holy cow. I, I just don't even want to count the number of months I've been without a mountain bike. A friend did loan me one. And so I was able to get out for some rides, you know, uh, over the last couple months. But uh, tax return came in uh, or refund came in and uh knowing that i had some other money coming from other sources like an insurance settlement eventually i figured i could allocate that temporarily um you know that whole peter and paul and mary and stealing and borrowing anyway uh don't yes don't tell people what it is don't tell people what it is let's hold this for a later episode when you have had a chance to ride it and okay. I can actually grill you on what it's like because it's a bike that I very closely considered before I got the bike that I just purchased. Well, which is yeah. which I will also talk about. Maybe we'll have a future episode where we talk about our new mountain bikes. How's that? And and if I hadn't bought this one, I would have bought what you bought. Yeah, I think that's uh-huh. obvious. Yeah. And that's um, good. I mean, I think it says something about these two particular bikes. So I'm excited to have that conversation with you in the future yeah um yeah yeah um well let's let's go ahead and jump into your pool yeah all right so i was in like as you said i was in seattle last week and every time i'm in that city i get very impressed by its cyclists um the same thing happens in minneapolis before people start flaming in the comments how wonderful their (laughs) own cycling culture is but so you in seattle you have this really capricious weather that can be what normal folks would call bad in air quotes <laughs> uh for long periods of time <laughs> like it's you not like all at year? all uncommon what's that like all year yeah pretty much like it's not <laughs> uncommon to look at the 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 10 day forecast and see rain the little rain icon every single day uh, which, if it were here, I would be uh, suicidal. And that's a joke mm-hmm. and not a joke at the same time. 
Um, mm. But the bike commuters in Seattle and the other kinds of bike riders, they're all out there uh, all the mm-hmm. time. You know, mm-hmm. you see them on their on their whatever their commuter rig is. And it's I, it's fascinating, you know, like I would get up in the co- in the morning and go out for coffee and uh, which they also have very good uh, in Seattle, as you know, and just watch the promenade of commuters on every manner of contraption. Uh, really mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, and then you also, you see people out training on aero road bikes, but they have fenders, you know, makeshift fenders <laughs> or whatever it is. It's just the coolest thing. Um, I am always struck by the number of riders fendered up and getting it done there. And this time I was particularly in tr- particularly, particularly mm-hmm. intrigued by the sheer number of people riding some sort of utility e-bike often with kids on board. And I know you have some insight on that, but I just, I love that whole, uh, I don't know. It's kind of a Swiss family Robinson, you know, kids hanging off the back or like groceries fluttering in the breeze. Um, other than seeing a lot of bikes I don't normally see, which made the bike watching nice, uh, I couldn't help thinking that Seattle is sort of what I think the, f- I think future cities need to look like. Uh, their In infrastructure, well, their infrastructure is pretty good. They have a lot uh-huh. of dedicated and even protected bike lanes, and they have a populace that's dedicated to moving themselves around by bike. Here in Boston, we have a good dedicated rider base, but we also have increased pressure to ride. And by that, I mean, like if you drive a car into Cambridge, uh, it's a really unpleasant experience. (laughs) There's no park. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's by design. There's no parking. Uh, They've taken most of the roads down from two lanes to one to make room for bikes and buses. Like they have dedicated bus lanes and dedicated bike lanes. Okay. Um, The message I get from Cambridge, what the city of Cambridge, which is just across the river from Boston, for those of you who are geographically challenged, um, the message I get from the city of Cambridge is don't, don't, don't drive here, ride your bike here or take a bus. And Boston is similar, if not quite so aggressive in its stance. So, um, you know, there is a there is a penalty to pay for driving your car into the city of Boston mm-hmm. uh, such that you might think, uh, you know, it would be better if I took public transit or my bike. Seattle, by comparison, is not a bad city to drive around. You know, like I, we stayed with some friends in a very populous and popular part of town. I never had trouble finding a parking spot. The traffic was never a big deal. Um, and yet Seattleites, Seattleians, I don't know what the right, I think it's Seattleites. Um, they ride their bikes. And so Mm -hmm. I think they're sort of worthy of extra admiration. And I think they're probably also on to the fact that that's what the future needs to look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It could be, I'm projecting, but I think, I think they're getting it in a way that many other urban dwellers are not. I wrote um, a piece for the site in February called A Panacea, which basically mm-hmm. says that the answer to all our problems is the bicycle. Um, yep. You know, which is basically pandering. 
Um, <laughs> the choir knows the words to that song. The choir knows the words. Um, I'm curious to see how cities in particular deploy bikes as solutions, whether there is intention and government guidance to that effect, or whether the people who live in a given place just embrace the obvious solution without having to be told like they have in Seattle. Maybe maybe today's high gas prices create some of that um, bike friendly leverage. I don't know. Um, but I think it's fascinating. Um, what, what, I mean, what is it like in Santa Rosa or even in, or even in Memphis where you spend some time? Um, Santa Rosa, I mean, you would think, okay, Northern California versus the mid South, which place is going to be more progressive on cycling? And everybody's going to think, oh, Northern California. And, uh, the reality is that, there's a fair amount of hostility towards cyclists and the amount of infrastructure here for cyclists is limited. Uh, Mm. There's some, we have some bike lanes, none of them are protected. And most of our bike lanes, the, uh, the white line on the left side is very Mm. worn. And the one on the right side is very bright because uh, it is not uncommon for people to put two wheels in the bike lane just to give them a little extra room from the pickup coming the other way or whatever. Um, So uh, uh, feeling safe in a bike lane is not, uh, that's not a thing for me. I'm I'll, I'll ride in the bike lane because that's where I'm supposed to be. Uh, But just because I have a bike lane doesn't mean I'm, I'm safe. (laughs) I ride as far to the right as I can, regardless of circumstance. Um, Memphis, on the other hand, is a very interesting place because that city has made a commitment to increasing infrastructure for cyclists as just part of an ongoing piece of what it does now. Um, So I I grew up on a little cul-de-sac of a lane right off of a, a bigger thoroughfare. And that larger thoroughfare in Memphis, when I was growing up, was four lanes, you know, two in each direction. A couple of years ago, I went back for a visit and it was two lanes with a bike lane. And I mean, the shift, I mean, that that road wasn't originally, you know, two lanes and then widened and then this and then that. And it became, you know, a kind of semi-highway for cars. No, it was built as four lanes. The entire time that that road had existed since it was built was four lanes. And to see it to go to two lanes with bike lanes on on both sides was just absolutely mind-boggling. I, In terms of a change in city infrastructure, there's nothing in my life that has ever been more shocking than the time I turned onto that street. And I did so in a car and I turned into the bike lane made a right turn and oh I got to get over. Um so Memphis is a really really curious place because they're they've made a big commitment to making cycling uh more uh better accommodated and and a a, a more safe thing to do. There's also the fact that when uh, an old railway uh, uh, track was turned into a, a bike path, the the Green Line, back circa 2009, I want to say, something like that. What that did in terms of, it, for Memphis, it was like the pandemic with bike sales. 
bikes just started flying out the doors of bike shops because people were like, we have a safe place to ride bikes. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, uh, the, the site that my old friend, Hal, uh, the, the, the shop that my old friend, Hal used to own in Midtown, uh, the peddler, that's where I first learned how to work on bikes. Uh, the peddler's business doubled the year the green line opened. Um, and you know, sure. There are an awful lot of moms with strollers and kids on razor scooters and whatnot out there. But when I ride, you know, at the margins of the day, mornings and evenings, you see a lot of commuters on the green line. And I see Mm. people riding around Memphis in a way I never, ever used to, uh, you know, in the 1990s, I thought of Memphis as being one of the most inhospitable cities to cycling that there was. Um, so it's it has come an awful long way. And I do think that when a city takes a more progressive stance like Seattle uh, and begins building infrastructure for cyclists, um, it, it's a field of dreams things, you know, build it. Yeah. And they will come. Uh, we've proven that over and over. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of momentum for pretty obvious reasons towards cycling, um, related to climate change and, and fuel costs and et cetera. I think it's great that cities are considering bike traffic, uh, and Mm -hmm. adapting their infrastructure. I'm very curious to see what happens with the last 10 feet of the cycling trip the part where you know i still go to the grocery store and there's not a bike rack near the door and Mm -hmm. the the bike rack that they do have doesn't have nearly enough spaces uh to encourage people (laughs) to go there you know it's like what do you do with your bike um and that's about not just a place to put it but a place to put it securely um Mm -hmm. And I wonder a lot if uh, office buildings, which are no longer in the sort of demand that they were because so many people are working from home and there's a sense that um, homework is going to be the new paradigm with maybe some Mm -hmm. shared office space existing for occasional or weekly meetings or whatever that is. It's it's this hybrid thing now. I'm wondering if those buildings will take some of their space and allocate it to bikes for people i would i would love to see that i would love to see every building with a certain um capacity consider some percentage of that capacity uh would be traveling by bike and how that might change people's approach because even now as a as a person who's willing to ride a bike around i think to myself well there's nowhere to put my bike if i go to this place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep you know, and the whole uh, city, if we ramp up, there's no there's not enough parking meters to lock to, um, not to mention <laughs> the problems with with that. But right. Right. Yeah. You know, I've got a Yuba spicy curry. It's a, um, a nearly 100 pound cargo bike. I, I think it's like 85 or something. I don't know. 90. Yeah. It's it's heavy. And one of the things that you can get for it is what's called a pin lock. So there are two tabs on the fork and you send the lock through the two tabs. They go through the wheel and the front wheel won't turn. So the only way you can steal that bike is picking the, 
you know, 100 pound bike up and carrying it off, uh, mm. which is kind of a disincentive. It's a little different if it's three o'clock in the morning um, and locked to your stairwell, <clears throat> but still outside. Right. This happened a few years back. But yeah, when I go to the grocery store, you know, the pin lock and keeping it like right by the door where everybody's walking by constantly, I haven't had concerns for that in the same sort of way. And since it's got a motorcycle type kickstand, you know, it just, it sits there. Um, right. And, you know, it constantly draws looks and oohs and ahs and whatnot and people wanting to know all about it. So it's enough of an attention grabber. Uh, that it's pretty secure. I think I keep saying that, you know, the moment it gets stolen, I'll go, Oh, mm. um, but yeah, locking that thing to something, finding something I can lock it to good grief. That's not easy. Right. I um, think that's the missing piece of our current bicycle planning. Yeah. Storage and, and in security the case of the yeah, with the spicy curry, since it's not like other bikes, getting it in close enough to a bike rack to be able to lock it to said bike rack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not going to um, happen. The whole geometry thing, not really convenient. So, yeah, yeah um, it's it's curious. Um, I. But I am hopeful now that we are in a place where. Uh, we're going to see communities continue to invest in infrastructure for cycling. Boy, I hope so. Yeah. Even schools, you know, our, we have one high school in our town and most of the kids, a lot of the kids walk, but there's a ton, you know, the whole area is swamped with cars because the juniors and seniors drive, not all of them, but some number of them do. And so it mm -hmm. clogs the neighborhood uh, it's like a two minute bike ride from most of the places that those kids are coming. Um, but there's really nowhere, you know, bikes get stolen there because the area is not secure and um, there's not really a good solution. And it, it, it would it would be such a step forward for the town to limit that traffic, that parking uh, snare. The kids would be healthier. There's just so much there that um, isn't. There's low hanging fruit. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. Not uh, to mention setting, setting those kids habits for later in life, but yeah. And the number, I mean, like my kid's school, the number of bike racks they've got there. Yeah. <laughs> Were you planning on securing the bike? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. All righty. Well, uh, what do you say? We take a little break, uh, take a deep breath and we'll be back in just a minute. The Pace Line is brought to you by The Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial, with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. 
Okay, we're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. What's your pull this week? It's funny, you know, we didn't discuss our pulls prior to uh, getting together. But again, you know, as as happens, uh, it seemingly increasingly, mine kind of <laughs> dovetails with yours. There have been a few stories in the news lately regarding e-bikes that I found mm, curious um, and maybe not just a little bit alarming. Uh, one regarded a bike shop burning to the ground in Florida because an e-bike battery left on a charger overnight um, and uh, the lithium ion cells in the battery blew up, according to reports from firefighters. Um this one concerns me because unlike 10 years ago, when there was nothing to charge on my bike other than the GPS unit, I now have DI2 batteries. Uh, I have SRAM ETAP batteries and I have a Bosch e-bike battery to charge. And I, good sir, am totally guilty of losing <laughs> batteries on chargers, sometimes for days at a time. Um, you know, I, I, talking with other people I know, I need to get timers to shut off after four or five hours, whatever the length is to sufficiently charge those, uh, those batteries. Um, yeah, I need, I need a timer so that I'm not, I, well, yeah, the ETAP batteries I just noticed last night were still on the charger had been there for days. Um, yeah, I need to, I need to not keep, and when I charge the, the Bosch battery, I do it downstairs in the garage and it certainly sits charging overnight. Um, yeah. So uh, that's, you know, this, this whole thing of lots of batteries to charge in cycling and batteries, sometimes uh, catching fires cause for some concern. Okay. So the other big story I ran across uh, comes from Utah where a woman has sued e-bike maker Rad Power because she fell down. In broad strokes, here's what happened. She ordered her bike online uh, because Rad Power is consumer direct. It was delivered, and this part is crucial, in a standard bike shipping carton. She assembled it, she says. Then she went for a ride, and the moment she went to turn, the handlebar turned, but the bike did not. And she fell. Let me just say that this isn't really an e-bike story. The fact that it was an e-bike is utterly irrelevant to her fall. This is about D2C, direct-to-consumer bike sales. The fact that her bike came in a standard shipping carton is key here because it means the stem wasn't tight and the bar was turned sideways in the shipping carton. When she pulled the bike from the box... She had to turn the bar 90 degrees. That experience alone told her the stem was not tight. I don't see how you blame the bike maker for not tightening something that the user had firsthand experience of not being tight. <laughs> this is the sort of thing that could happen to Canyon or Specialized or any other company, but I think the e-bike brands that are consumer direct like Rad Power, Kimiway, Aventon, others, um, they're at the greatest risk for this sort of lawsuit. I imagine that the average Canyon buyer has some experience with bikes and bike tools. I don't know that for sure. Um, 
But, you know, if you've got someone who's buying their first bikes since, say, the Clinton administration, um, I think that's a bigger ask. Um, okay, so clearly, I don't think Rad Power is in the wrong. Um, to make consumer direct bike purchases possible, bikes have to be put into bike boxes. Uh, some companies out there are using funny shaped boxes so that the handlebar and stem are already secure as a means to circumvent this very thing. And I think we will probably see more of these boxes being used by other manufacturers, uh, perhaps as a direct response to this very lawsuit. Um, but there will always be things that need to be secured on a bike that's shipped to a consumer, like pedals, um, setting the saddle height. You're, there's going to be stuff that the rider has to do. Now, my point here isn't to throw the woman behind the lawsuit under the proverbial bus. She's not the problem, in my opinion. Her lawsuit points to a much larger issue, which is consumer education, especially where e-bikes are concerned. There's a need in our society to educate people uh, who are buying e-bikes about A, the bikes themselves, uh, B, what the law says about riding class one, two or three e-bikes on roads, bike paths, park trails. Uh, C, what about etiquette when riding near pedestrians and other cyclists? You know, there are just so many issues. I'm usually loath to raise an issue that I don't personally see a solution, solution to and am willing to suggest said solution to. Um, but we've discussed this before, John, you know, educating e-bike buyers about where they can legally ride their bikes. Um, but when I think about like driver education courses uh, and how crazy some of the driving out on the road is, I I see I see a a, a big struggle. <laughs> There's an awful lot of edu- yeah. uh, effort made to educate drivers, and yet we still have a lot of really really bad driving. So I'm not feeling super confident that any effort we undertake is really going to make a huge impact. My concern here is less about preventing stupid and much more about building enjoyment and ownership. Uh, You know, I don't want to just complain about people. That's not what's going on here. (laughs) Um, I've got my own time to do that. (laughs) I'd like to see everyone who buys an e-bike feel like they are part of a larger community of people who value cycling. I'd like them to understand their e-bike well enough to be able to handle things like lubing their chain and fixing flats, because that helps them better understand their bike and when it needs to go into a shop for service. And, you know, if they aren't blowing by other riders at 20 miles per hour with their thumb on a push-button throttle, this is a guess, okay? This is entirely a guess. But I'm bet. I'm willing to bet that they are going to get fewer nasty looks. Um, but the fact remains, how do we undertake such an endeavor? What, how do we, how do we teach people so that they don't feel like they're being lectured? Um, uh, wow, this is, it's so tough. First of all, first of all, let me say, uh, I don't think this is the the woman who fell down. I don't think it's her fault entirely. Mm. 
I think, you know, this is a non-digital, this is an analog situation. I think she participates in the blame. Um, because you, there can't, there can't not have been a set of instructions there that, um, that told her how to assemble the bike in whatever limited way it needed to be assembled. And if there weren't instructions, then it's entirely on rad power and they, they have whatever is coming to them, coming to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe that's the case. And if it is the case, maybe it was an oversight in shipping that the instructions didn't get in. But regardless, I think second thing I'll say is I think there's a huge liability for direct to consumer sellers. Mm-hmm. And it's part I I have I'm going to before I say anything else, I'll say I have a bias against direct to consumer sellers. I think that they're I think it's a bit greedy. You know, we can make the price lower because we cut the shops out of the deal and that makes the product more attractive. And yet we get more margin and it's an easier uh, delivery to manage. I understand their motivations, mm-hmm. but it it is a little bit like slinging their product out into the wild and just saying, well, we got the money. Who cares what happens next? Because Ooh. for every every consumer that knows that they need to tighten the stem, uh, that the pedals are going to be reverse threaded, um, you know, for for all of the informed consumers out there, there's at least an equal, if not a greater number who are not. Mm-hmm. And what's their experience going to be? And if their experience isn't optimal, who is going to put it online? I guarantee you at the end of the day, it's going to be someone in a bike shop that's going to put the, the thing right. Because there's mm-hmm. only so much you can do via, via FAQs, phone calls. And, and frankly, the direct-to-consumer companies I've seen, you know, you call them, you get a phone tree of automated stuff. It's just like... It's just not a good recipe, in my mind, for producing a uh, frequent rider who enjoys their experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so, my strong feeling is that if you are going to sell direct to consumer, you should also have, in all of the markets in which you sell a network of shops who are on some level familiar with your product and willing and able to work on it. And if you don't have that sort of support in a, in a market, in a community, I don't think you should sell bikes there. I think it's a disservice to your customer. I think it's a massive liability issue for the company itself mm-hmm. uh, because you know, it's a matter of time before this woman falls and breaks her face or a pro- improperly secured front wheel uh, comes off and cr- and produces a serious injury. Um, that's though that's the outside of the spectrum of the consequences that the inside of the spectrum is that's the totally wrong use of the word spectrum. But stick with me. Um, <laughs> the 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 best, you know, the best case of the worst scenarios is that the rider just doesn't really enjoy the bike because it's not assembled well. They don't really get it um, and they don't ride it very much. And who does that help? Who does that help? I yeah. mean, did the company say, well, we've got the money in our pocket, so that's all we needed? If so, you're not going to have a company very long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I've been looking so at. So I went on a little bit of a rant there, but <laughs> and and I came up with the usual uh, solution for me that people need to need to support bike shops and be, you know like mm-hmm. ours is not uh, these aren't um, uh, wine glasses where you get the wine and you pour it in the wine glass and then you pour that in your face and it's there's no assembly required and no instructions <laughs> necessary. This yeah. is a product. I don't know why I picked wine glasses, but this is not a, pro- a simple product. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can order a down jacket online and very, very little can go wrong. Right. You uh, worst case in there, you put your left in the right and your right in the left and you're wearing a smock. Yeah. I mean, the box gets crushed. It, <laughs> it's still a down jacket. You know, it's yeah, uh, there's. Yeah. Um, if you haven't learned zippers by now, um, there are probably bigger issues at work in your life. Um, so, yeah, some things it makes a whole lot of sense to sell that way. Um, and certainly there are, you know, bike lines out there that have partnered with um, stuff like VeloFix, you know, the the sprinter vans that right. run around. Right. So there are there are some partnerships that have been forged that way that are very helpful. Um, but even so, you know, in those instances that, that last bit of education about, you know, just better understanding the bike and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of etiquette and things to watch out for so that they don't get thump thump by a school bus. Um, I, I worry about those, you know, the, the need for productivity being so high, you know, uh, so many bikes built during a day, that sort of thing doesn't permit for as much, uh, consumer interaction as we used to have. So <laughs> yeah. I, I want, I want people who are buying these bikes, uh, to feel like they've done something, you know, lovely and significant for their lives. And, you know, that there's a community out there that they can, be a part of, uh, go rides, you know, go on rides with other people and that sort of thing. And we are failing them in some regard. I think that's right. I think that, you know, the, the sort of person who uh, buys a bike direct, not in all cases, I know that there are plenty of you out there who have bought bikes, online who know what you're doing and et cetera, et cetera. But this new e-bike paradigm um, and rising gas prices and climate change and all of this is going to produce more consumers who want to buy a bike and they're, because they don't know very much, their primary arbiter is going to be price. And so direct to consumer options are going to be very attractive to them. Um, I don't think their experience is going to be great. I think the responsibility here lies with the company to produce the, the, the right outcome, not with that consumer. Um, and I think that, I mean, it's a real, it's a real pet peeve of mine when someone says, oh, this company is totally disrupting this industry. (laughs) Uh, Who are they disrupting it for? You know, they're cutting out the middleman or the middle person, in this case, the bike shop, in order to produce something cheaper or, mm-hmm. you know, let's be kind, more affordable um, and to protect their own margins. 
but does it produce a good outcome? You know, does it produce a good outcome? I, I know not enough people are asking that question. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you know, one of the things that we have to contend with is, you know, any given company out there, you know, their, their first duty is to stay in business. They've got employees, they need to pay the employees so that they keep working there. You know, there's this whole ecosystem and the bottom line that allows them to continue to do what it is they're doing is only selling more bikes. The, you know, there's, there's no upside to making a big investment in education, at least in the near term. You know, that's, there's not a metric that they can quantify uh, regarding consumer education. So, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it is not incented, as we say. Sure. And then you, you have to ask yourself, do communities have to, um, you know, and this gets onerous and odious pretty quickly, but do you, do we have to have e-bike rider permits? Um, I, yeah. I, I don't really like that at all. I don't no. really, uh, but, but, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> you know, as it happens, every Every Sunday when I have the good fortune to go ride my mountain bike out in West County, on my way home, I'll be on Highway 12 coming from Sebastopol into Santa Rosa. And uh, in that last little stretch of the highway, um, it's elevated and I can look off to the right down into the fairgrounds. Uh, And there's a parking lot at the Santa Rosa fairgrounds where uh, every Sunday somebody is out there teaching a motorcycle safety course. And yeah. I always turn and look and there's always about a dozen people taking that course. Um, you know, what would it take for us to institute something like that for e-bike riders or just well, any cyclist a- at all? Yeah. Yeah. I, as I was thinking about the e-bike permit, mm-hmm. um, uh, it occurred to me in, in the state of Massachusetts, you have to have your car inspected once a year. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true in every state. It's not, um, unfortunately. It's not. So you have to have your car inspected every year, basically to confirm that it works and mm-hmm. it's not uh, polluting excessively. So there are emission standards, et cetera. So it's a pain in the ass, but it's a thing you do. Now, there are too many... Um, cars in our state for state facilities to inspect Mm -hmm. that would be a massive undertaking by the state it would require a massive investment and so uh mechanics and service stations are empowered to do this and it's a revenue stream for them right so i can go to my local gas station and you know pull into their bay and they can do they have a machine uh given to them by the state and they charge money for it. Uh, and there that's how, you know, millions of inspections happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it's unrealistic to, to turn a bike shop into that sort of thing to say, well, you know, if you're going to buy an e-bike, you have to come by and get e-bike certified. And the shop is then obligated to teach you basic things about how to ride a bike in traffic 
um, and to make sure that your bike is assembled properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the thing with the car inspection is that it takes 12 minutes, you know, um, mm-hmm. and so it would need to be that sort of deal. Uh, but is that completely crazy? Yeah, I, I bet there are a whole lot of people who are just itching to argue against that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, look, I don't I don't really love, you know, it does smack of. To me, the bike is a freedom machine, and I don't really want the state telling me how to do it and 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 interfering. Mm-hmm. But that probably comes from some whatever level of uh expertise i already have so i have an inborn uh reluctance to be told what to do i mean i probably have just an inborn reluctance to be told what to do um (laughs) you yeah um you know but just to, to your point about uh drivers being so terrible and needing driver education you know some level of uh regulation uh of these things would improve our lives collectively. Yeah. I mean, if it could be done successfully, yeah, that would probably help. Uh, I am uh, very, very exceedingly, totally, well, maybe not totally, but I'm, I really dislike the idea of trying to legislate uh, cycling into uh, something better. You know, the bottom line here is, I want people who are buying these bikes to have a great experience. Um, I want them to be accepted by other cyclists. We, we need to help folks out some. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, all right, Even if I haven't proposed a great solution, I do agree. Well, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I knew as I was raising this that it's like, I'm going to throw a problem out there and then all we're going to do is kick the can some. So, you know, uh, uh, success not achieved. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, listeners, if you have the solution, put it in comments. <laughs> yeah. There's um, somebody smart out there. Yeah. 300 words or less though. Um, <laughs> all right. Paceline yes. picks. What's your pick this yes. week? Uh, this week I'm picking the spy optic bounty glasses. Hmm. Uh, and particularly the ones with the clear lenses. Okay. I I bought these originally as riding glasses for darkness and low light uh, because I prefer to ride with glasses on. Um, I get, you know, here the weather is very weathery, so you get watery eyes if you're blazing around on a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also prone to getting stuff in them because the roads are filthy with ro- either road salt and, and uh, sand in the winter or all manner of nonsense uh, in the warmer times. So I just like to ride with glasses on. I find I can see better, especially, you know, if, especially if I'm riding like technical single track. Uh, mm-hmm. I just really feel better if my eyes are shielded. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I'll wear sunglasses if it's an extra bright day, but I find, uh, especially in the woods, the light conditions are so variable that sunglasses just get to be problematic almost immediately. Mm -hmm. So I got these things with the clear lenses. Um, 
The other thing is for a long time, I was spending significant time in a bike building factory uh, when I worked at Seven Cycles. Uh, so these would do double duty. They're ANSI certified as safety glasses. So I'd ride in with them on and then just keep them on my head for forays back into the back into the shop to check on customer frames and or to hassle the frame builders over nothing in particular. They're just <laughs> cool people. You need glasses to talk to them because it's a factory. Um, The Bounty... Spy makes a lot of glasses you can get in this format. The Bounty is a wraparound style frame, which I like because it sits still on my head. Um, Mm. It's not terrible looking. I think it looks cool, but I'm a 50-year-old man, so take that with a grain of salt and uh, decide for yourself. (laughs) Retail is 95 bucks, which is a lot to pay for clear glasses, but what I can tell you is that they are well-nigh indestructible. I've inadvertently tried to destroy them and failed, and I've had this pair for nearly a decade. Now, the other thing I can tell you is that replacement lenses are available for most of Spy's stuff. So, like, the pair that I left on the roof of my car uh, and drove away and then realized and circled back, uh, I was able to get new lenses for, and it's a brand new pair of glasses. albeit wow. with some scratch scratches. The bounties come in gloss black or matte black, which are my two favorite colors. And, uh, they also come in sunglass form. If that's your jam, uh, with a number of lens options available. So that's it. Spy optic bounty. Cool. Well, given all our talk of e-bikes, uh, I'm returning to a pick from a few years back, the Yuba Spicy Curry. This is Yuba's cargo e-bike with a 26-inch wheel in front and a 20-inch wheel in back in a long tail design. Uh, it's about halfway between a standard bike and a tandem bike in length. Uh The smaller rear wheel creates a low deck on this bike that gives kids a place to sit or the opportunity to mount a large basket. Um, There's a place to mount a large basket in front as well. Um, It's got one of the Bosch uh, motors, so it's a mid drive. Um, I sometimes call mine the station wagon. I can carry (laughs) both of my boys and four bags of groceries uh, and ride home at better than 18 miles an hour. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, in some ways it's a little bit like an old country squire, just without the fake wood grain. Uh, I mean, the right painter could hook you up there, but go on. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I could just get a wrap, you know, that's, that's all the rage now. <laughs> you could get a wrap. Yeah. Uh, like most folks, uh, I leave the Bosch motor in turbo mode, except when the battery is under two miles of range. That's the only time I start backing off how much it's helping me. Uh, with the various running boards and handlebars and baby seats and surfboard racks and ski racks, this may be one of the most modular bikes on the planet. Um, and it's my primary way of getting around town in decent weather. Yes, I am admitting it. I don't ride in just any weather. I am a wimp that way. Um, The spicy curry isn't cheap. It goes for $49.99, but uh, in gas savings alone, mine paid for itself last year. Uh, I also know some of the people at Yuba, and they're really, really lovely folks. Just 
their whole jam is, you know, using bikes for transportation. They don't make any racing bikes, uh, no yeah. full suspension mountain bikes. Uh, so from that standpoint, they're an, a company that's super easy to support. Um, as always, there will be links to both of these products in our show notes. Cool. Yeah. Uh, alrighty. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for RKP's. I did it again. I you did, did it, it again. again. Yeah, I did it last week. <laughs> I mentioned RKP. <laughs> uh, TCI's other podcasts, uh, uh, revolting, which is a cycling podcast that isn't really about cycling, uh, with you and Steve Knievel of all hail the black market. Um, and then enter the deuce, uh, which is even less about cycling and is more about the miracle that is modern medicine. Um, we're hoping you like them. And if you do, please subscribe on iTunes or, or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if we aren't listed in a place you like to get podcasts, let us know where you'd like us to appear. Um, it's gotten hard to keep up with all of those different outlets. Send us some questions. If you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent or put a suggestion in our comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week. I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.